everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm with Terry Fakes, and we are back stateside for another episode of the So We Speak podcast. Indeed. We had a great uh, trip to Israel together, took some folks from Crossings Church, from Carlton Landing Church, and we had an amazing trip because Israel just reopened, and by chance, or God's grace, we were one of the first groups in. So there were not many crowds. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we dive back into this happens to me every time, maybe it does to you. You've been several times to Israel. But when I come back from Israel, I read my Bible with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's good to have that refresher and make me read my Bible and just fall in love with it all over again. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And um, you, you know, every time you go over there, you learn something new and have new experiences. And, of course, you get a new group and bond and it's just you know there's a lot that you learn even beyond just the sites over there but I was with a group of pastors last week and I wasn't even thinking of it I just was telling a story of something that happened I said so okay so we're in Nazareth and and one of the guys stopped he's like how cool is it to say to start a story with okay so we were in Nazareth (laughs) yeah and uh, it takes a little bit for that to wear off but it's pretty fun to look back at these bible stories with that in your background because it, it brings you back to the point of these people were real people making real decisions with factors that, if you just think about it a little bit, make total sense in their context to do what they did. And God was working in the midst of that. So we've been saving up certain biblical overviews to the end. Because when we started this out several years ago, we thought, here we go, we're going to do all of our favorite books first, and then we're going to end up at the end with all of our least favorite books. Not that any of the books are bad, but, you know, and that's really not going to be good for people listening because you will hit all the major points and then you know what's coming after this. It's all the minor prophets. It's right. It's, it's Leviticus and, and Numbers. Right. Which we still haven't done Leviticus, <laughs> I don't think. But this episode, the Gospel of John, is one that we've had to refrain from doing because it's been one that we've both been looking forward to uh, for a couple of years. And the great thing about it now is we've both been teaching in the Gospel of John, right. which is very fresh, great ability to do a new round of research on top mm-hmm. of some old research and lessons that we both had. And I have been going through the seven I am statements, which we'll talk about here in a minute in, in the gospel of John, which has given us a great opportunity in Carlton Landing to hit some of these high point stories, Mm -hmm. get an overview of the book. But one of the things that we've done alongside that is a reading plan through the gospel of John. So it's been really nice to be able to hit those I am statements and then during the week be able to hit some of the reading that goes along with it. And, and writing these short devos along with it has been really nice for me to get to go and reinvestigate these stories. So like all biblical passages, John is one that every time you visit it, it you get something new. Right. But maybe especially, uh, this is especially the case with John, because I would say stylistically, philosophically, theologically, this book is packed with meaning. And you can tell that right off the bat when you start the Gospel of John, because it doesn't start like any of the other Gospels. That is true. Uh, In fact, it does start out like one book of the Bible, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it doesn't start out like any of the other Gospels. And so immediately when you read John 1.1, you know something is different. And maybe that's the best place to start with John, is what is this Gospel? And after we have three others, why do we need John? Good, Good question, actually, because you have three... Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. Synoptic just means they approach things or see things the same way. And they are basically approaching the life of Jesus from, I wouldn't call it a historical 
manner. They have an agenda. They, they know they can't put everything in there. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a biography. But they basically have a point to move you through his life and acquaint you with his teaching and what's going on. John doesn't even try to adhere to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the traditional view to which I ascribe is that John was written much later than the other three. And I suspect, strongly suspect, John was familiar with at least one, if not all, of the other three Mm -hmm. Gospels. And so I suspect John was written near the end of his life, looking back, and he wrote this Gospel saying, I don't need to do what's already been done, but there are things that I think will help you uh, to believe. And as, as you know, the purpose of the gospel is given at the end of the gospel mm-hmm. of John. But I think that's why it is so very different is John is trying to do something different to give you a different lens to look through. What do you think? Yeah, I think the gospels are all three, all four different lenses and the first three being more similar. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that is because, and we've talked about this in, in the podcasts on Mark and Matthew especially, and a little bit in the one on Luke, because most people think that's because of some literary dependence, that right. there is a lot of similarity between these passages, even verbal similarities. Mm-hmm. That completely disappears in John. Right. I mean, of the events, it's like upwards of 80% of the material in terms of the things that happen in the book of John are new. Now, these are really big new things. I mean, right. you're like, how is the raising of Lazarus only reported in John? Well, it makes a lot more sense that if John has the knowledge of these other Gospels, he's going to include the things he really wants you to know. Right. And even down to what you mentioned earlier, which is a really fascinating part of John, the chronology of John mm-hmm. is not even remotely similar to the others in the sense that the first half of John takes place over his ministry and the second half takes place over a single week. Right. Most of it, three days. Right. <laughs> so you have different aims, different goals in the Gospel of John. And some of it is, if you already knew the basic contours of Jesus' life, what else would you want to say? And so when you come to John, have that question in the back of your mind. Okay, if you already knew about a lot of the miracles, if you already knew about a lot of the teaching, Sermon on the Mount, what else would you need to know about him? And that's that's a good way to start thinking about how John's coming to this. One of the things that personally always impressed me about John is that it is probably the simplest Greek in the New Testament, in my view. When you start translating the New Testament after a couple semesters of Greek or whatever it is, you're probably going to translate something John wrote. Mm-hmm. First John, Gospel of John, because it's very simple language. And yet, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, the structure of John there are depths there that are hard to plumb. This mm-hmm. is very deep book. The structure is amazingly deeply thought out. And mm-hmm. I see John at the end of his life still a plain talker mm-hmm. and yet disclosing this depth. And I think that's encouraging to me because you don't need eloquent sermons. You don't have to be a scholar to express profound ideas because John's language is not that of a scholar, and yet it's so profound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot packed into very simple, short sentences in John, so it has a very unique flavor. Um, The other thing is it's structured very differently, and so maybe give us a kind of a flyover outline of the gospel before we dive into any of the individual passages. Well, if I were reading this for the first time, and this, by the way, when I 
decided to investigate Christianity, this is the first book I read. Mm -hmm. And if I were going to read it for the first time, and I know our listeners probably have read it before, but as you go back to read it again, I would want to know this. There's a prologue, a beginning part, the first 18 verses of John that are just very deep. There is an epilogue at the end, which is basically chapter 21, which is wrapping up at the end. In between, there are two major movements, and the first of these goes from chapter 1, uh, verse 19, after the prologue, all the way to the end of chapter 12, and it's often called the book of signs, and there are some specific things in those chapters that John is going to mention. Then starting in chapter 13 through the rest of the book is, as you said, the last week of Jesus' life, and most of that is the last three days mm-hmm. of Jesus' life, and it's called the book of glory or the book of passion. It's basically the lead-up during that week to the cross. So you have half the book, the book of signs, half the book leading up to the cross. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've been uh, preaching in some of the signs, and you, have, you really made a good point when we were talking earlier about the difference between a sign and a miracle. It's mm-hmm. in, I mean, John calls certain events signs, and some of the other gospel writers call them miracles. Right. And there, there is a little bit of overlap in some of the things that John relays to where we know that he's talking about miracles that the other authors would talk about as miracles as signs. And I think the reason for this is because John is concerned with proving who Jesus is. There's a giant overarching theme in the Gospel of John uh, that some people refer to as the trial motif. Mm-hmm. That Jesus' life is on trial throughout the entire Gospel of John, ending when he is literally on trial in front of Pilate in chapter 18. And then when he dies and rises, that is proof, vindication, that he is who he says he is. Well, one of the ways to understand these signs is as proof of who he really is. So the theme of John is in John chapter 20, verse 31. And John says, the whole world could be filled with books about what Jesus did. But these things have been written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and you might have life in his name. The signs are to prove that he is the Son of God, he is the Christ, and you can have life in him. That's throughout the whole book. And so what these signs do is, it like the, the wedding feast at Cana is only in the Gospel of John. And it's the first sign that Jesus does. Now, Matthew might have called that a miracle. And that's right. fine. And it is it a was. miracle. Yeah. But what John wants to say is it's not about the miracle. The miracle is pointing to something else. And you see this, especially in the Gospel of Mark. You'll see Mark say, he calmed the storm. And the disciples said, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey. Mm-hmm. That's a sign. The, the calming of the waves is not just so that you would be in awe that this person can do that. Right. It's If he can do that, what else can he do? Exactly. If he can open the eyes of the blind, what can he do to your soul? Right. If he can turn water into wine, what can he do taking the he old covenant make to bread the new? like manna and feed all these people? What does that mean about his eternal ability to exactly. nurture you? Now, the other thing that's kind of unique about the way John uses these signs... Now, the reason it's called the Book of Signs in chapters 1 through 12 is because there are seven signs that John identifies, leading all the way up to raising Lazarus from the dead. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what what Jesus does is he does a sign, and then he gives a discourse. 
There are a lot of long discourses in John. In fact, the longest chapter in the New Testament is in John, John chapter 6, mm-hmm. which is a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 in right. chapter 5, and then at, or at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus walks on water, and then he has a long discourse about being the bread of life, having the words of eternal life. And, and it doesn't end well, as I recall. No, it does not end well. But it's an explication mm-hmm. of the miracle itself. Right. So he does the miracle. This is a sign. Feeding the 5,000 is a sign. And I just preached a sermon on this if you want more of what that sign is, because there's a really interesting background about Moses and the manna and Jesus and the 5,000. And why these people didn't think feeding 5,000 people was actually all that impressive, because right. Moses fed millions of people for years in the desert. <laughs> Hard to impress. But it's a sign that if he can do that to feed you physically... Then he says, I am the bread of life. Imagine what he can do to satisfy your soul eternally. So every time you see these signs, there's usually a follow-up where Jesus is telling you something about himself that proves John's thesis, which is he's the Christ, the Son of God, and you can have life in his name. This arrangement is really unique Mm -hmm. in the Gospels. You don't really see this anywhere else. You see Matthew built around five big discourses. They're not connected like this. This sign motif is unique. And it's, uh, and it's deep in the fact that there are seven signs. It's not a coincidence. But there's another thread simultaneously running through this. You talked about the trial motif, which, of course, comes to a head in 1819 with the literal trial before Pilate. But even through this first part of the book, this book of signs, you actually see it's as though John is bringing in witnesses mm-hmm. to testify. Would you walk through that and tell us what are the different witnesses that John brings in to, quote, testify to Jesus? Yeah, this, this is where Bible word studies can be really helpful. Sometimes word studies get a bad rap, and mm-hmm. I think this is sometimes for good reason, because every now and then, you know, you've got a semester of seminary under your belt, and you know just about just enough about word studies to be dangerous. Right. Um, but word studies can be very helpful when you look at the way a certain author uses certain words. And so a really helpful word study that I did the other day was how is the word um, witness, which is where we get the word martyr. So mm-hmm. martyria and martyreo, the noun and the verb. How are those that word group, those two words and others, used in the Gospel of John? How does John want us to understand what this word means? Well, it turns out that there are about six different witnesses in the Gospel of John. And I'll I'll list a few of them, and and then if you want to dive into this, you'll start to see a web of themes that John is putting together in this trial. So at the beginning, it opens with a witness, and the witness is John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. John says, Behold, this is the guy. Behold the Lamb of God. And he comes to witness. And John actually says this at the beginning. Um, And he uses the light motif that comes in through John a lot. Jesus talked about it as light a lot. And later Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Right. Well, it says in verse 6 and 7, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Okay, that sounds very close to our theme. Right. So John at the beginning is witnessing to Christ. And he does so physically present through the first chapter. He shows up again later. And then word about John continues all the way through the first half of this book. And mm-hmm. John's witness about Jesus all the way through into chapter 12. Then you have a new character that appears in the discourse that starts in chapter 14. 
the disciple that Jesus loved. This is a really odd part of John, and maybe do a little background on who is this person and why do we think that maybe this is John? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the early church thought that this was written by the apostle John, but in this book, you'll notice that he's never refers to himself. He is a, a not a distant narrator, but he's an unnamed narrator. And then at the very end, he sort of discloses that, you know, and the one writing this is the one, the disciple that Jesus loved. Right. Yeah, and so it's a little cryptic, and I think one of the reasons is because the primary John in the Gospel of John Mm -hmm. is John the Baptist. Right. So one of the reasons he doesn't use his own name is because he has this other title that he wants to use so it doesn't obscure John the Baptist at the beginning. But they are actually bookend witnesses. Right. So John the Baptist witnesses in the beginning, then later the disciple that Jesus loves comes into the story He's there at the Last Supper. He's there at the tomb. He's there with Jesus when Peter's restored. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he says, and this one, the one who Jesus loved, is witnessing about what he's seen. And there's an interesting tie-in here to the to the letter of 1 John. So in 1 John, also written by exactly. John, uh, he says, that which we have seen, which we've touched. Which we've, our hands have handled. Yeah, concerning the words of life. Yeah. He's a witness, And he wants to let you know he's witnessing. Well, all throughout John, you have other witnesses. And there's actually a really interesting portion in um, John chapter 6 where Jesus says that if he alone witnesses about himself, then his, his testimony is not true. And this goes back to the Jewish law where you actually need to trust the testimony of two or more witnesses. Mm -hmm. So the book of John brings in other witnesses. Well, in chapters 8 and 10, his works are witnessing about him. In chapter 6 later on, Moses and the scriptures are witnessing about him. His father is witnessing about him. So all through John, you're going to see, if you sat down and read it through in one sitting, Mm -hmm. you would be astounded. Oh, man, all these things are witnessing as to who Jesus is. And Jesus does witness about himself in the context of, of all these other things witnessing about him to where you get to the end of the book And there's a chorus of witnesses proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. It's just another really powerful and a little bit sophisticated way of showing you that Jesus is who he is and you can trust him. I agree. I think it's very sophisticated for someone who's, when you you see the language is so simple, you expect the ideas are simple. And that's not true. This is very complicated, and I don't mean complicated as in hard to understand. I just mean he's woven so many things together. So it makes it a joy to read. You know, one other thing I think John does to make connections is he has some unique titles for Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, the first, there are three that stand out to me, but the first is in the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Logos, and that is uh, parallelism with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Here, in the beginning, the Word. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he said the Word was with God, the Word was God, everything was created through the Word. And so you get this idea of expanding the nature of God, and you begin to see Trinitarian ideas. You begin to see God expressed. And I love that because it connects with the Greeks, I think, intentionally mm-hmm. by using logos, which was a well-developed idea in the whole non-Jewish world as 
the organizing principle of the universe. We don't know really what this is, but we know the universe seems to have some order to it. So there must be something behind this, some intelligence. Let's just call it the Logos. Mm -hmm. And John says, I'm going to tell you about this Logos. And so the idea of Jesus being the Word is a unique and really connective way to talk about Jesus. Yeah. The second is the Lamb of God. And, of course, John the Baptist uses that phrase. And, of course, that's got huge connections for the Jews. Definitely. And so he roots Jesus, he connects Jesus to Greek thought and their observations of the universe. And he connects Jesus to Jewish understanding of sacrifice and sin. And so the Word and the Lamb of God, are, to me, are just two really powerful labels mm -hmm. that, that John uses. But the third one is something that you could tell us a little about because I think you're preaching a series on this. And these I am statements, mm -hmm. they're kind of unique to John. Yeah, these are unique in the sense that we get the sense of Jesus being some of these things in the other Gospels. What we don't get is Jesus making these declarative statements, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the true vine. You don't give them that explicitly. And one of the things we're doing in our series is we're, we're just going through these seven I am statements to talk about who Jesus says he is. And the interesting thing is in the titles, I've always been doing I am in capital letters and then the light of the world, which is a little bit of a suggestive way to say one of the things going on here is Jesus saying, I am all of these things, is an assertion in both a syntactical, kind of play mm -hmm. on words type way, and a thematic way. He is claiming to be God. Right. So this is really evident when he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really suggestive. Because you see that people understood it that way because they pick up stones to kill him afterwards. Yeah, they understood what he was saying. But it's a little bit more subtle, but if you know your Bible, it becomes really apparent when he says something like, I am the good shepherd who will lay down my life for my sheep that I know by name. And then you go back to the book of Isaiah, mm -hmm. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Psalms. Who knows all their sheep by name? God does. Who's right. going to come shepherd his sheep? God is. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, they know my voice, I call them by name, that's an assertion that he is God. Mm -hmm. Of course, in chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one, which is an assertion that he is God. I mean, this is something that would have been blasphemous if you're not correct. Right. So these I am statements are not just statements of identity. What can you expect from Jesus? Well, you can expect that if you stay attached to him, you can be fruitful and flourish, like in John 15, I'm the true vine. But at the same time, it's also an assertion of who he is as far as his deity. Right. He is God. He is the Son of God, which is to say, He is God. And that's something you don't get quite too much in the earlier Gospels. I will say, so when I was in seminary, a couple of the books that we read really didn't like saying that in the New Testament, Jesus was worshipped as God. So mm -hmm. there's a whole kind of liberal theological move to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Right. That was his later followers. Right. And what's interesting is those books almost always exclude the Gospel of John and Hebrews as too late and Not too authentic. ambiguous. Because. Ambiguous. 
Beca- and, and I don't want to say it's just because of this. This is kind of cynical reading. But it is an interesting coincidence that John, which has probably the highest and most overt um, explanations of who Jesus is, that, that's a little late. We really can't consider that. Because uh-huh. then we would have to say, no, Jesus' earliest followers and Jesus himself were convinced that he is God. Mm-hmm. And he claimed to be God. Mm-hmm. And if you read the Gospel of John, it's really hard to avoid Jesus was making some very serious claims about being God. And uh, the people at the time obviously thought he was because all through John, they're conspiring to kill him. Right. Oh, I agree. And, you know, the fact that there are seven I am statements, there are seven signs. Seven is such a powerful, uh, it is the number of perfection. It's the number that's used with God. When you read, by the way, when you read the book of Revelation and there are a string of adjectives about God, seven adjectives. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just this underlying idea there, but it, the structure, the deep structure of John, as you read through it, it's it's entertaining, it's inspiring, it's, it's easy to read, but as, upon further reading and thinking, and hopefully as you read it now, you'll be looking for these, these webs that, that come together in the book of John. So the first half we've covered pretty well, the book of signs. Second half is the book of glory. Give us a quick overview of what's happening in the second half of the book. Because like we said, this this is almost zooming in on Jesus' final days in ministry. Right. So you get, uh, as you begin chapter 13, you see Jesus has just raised Lazarus. He's moving toward Jerusalem. Obviously, he's going to eat the Passover. And 13... He begins to eat this, uh, it begins this way. Now, right before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And during the supper, the devil put it into Judas. So now you get the foot washing, you get Judas uh, betrayal, you get in 14, 15, 16, the teaching as they probably left the upper room, and they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is taking this last evening to teach them. You see the great prayers of Jesus, and then you see Jesus arrested. So really, all of this that's happening is happening between that Thursday night and then, of course, the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And chapters 14 through 16, they're, they're shorter, just shorter than the Sermon on the Mount in mm-hmm. terms of actual word count. To where the Sermon on the Mount is probably Jesus' longest sermon. It's his longest um, speaking in in the New Testament. But that combined with 17, which is a prayer, which Mm -hmm. is sometimes called the high priestly prayer, is a huge block of teaching. And it's all what we would call eschatological, which means about the last times, Mm -hmm. in an already not yet kind of way. It's not quite like the Olivet Discourse, which we talked about in the podcast on Matthew that talks about destruction. Mm -hmm. This is all about Jesus going away, sending the Spirit, empowering his people, and at some point being reunited with them. And the disciples, through this whole thing, they're asking questions and they are misunderstanding. And it's really hard for them to talk about what's going to happen. But you have some of the most powerful and pithy statements of Jesus in these mm-hmm. passages. In fact, there are some really famous parts of this. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, you have John 16, 33, in this world you have trials, but take heart, I've overcome the world. John right. 15, I'm the true vine. One of the parts that I really love that um, sometimes get skipped over 
is in John 14 when Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Mm-hmm. I will appear to him. Mm-hmm. This is after he says that the Spirit is is coming. Now, Judas, not Iscariot, I always think that's kind of an interesting note. He probably told John, hey, make sure they know it wasn't <laughs> Judas Iscariot. Make sure they know it was me. Hey, make sure they don't think I'm the other Judas. I'm getting a lot of bad PR right yeah. now. Um, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? This is a really profound question. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, um, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this whole Trinitarian Mm -hmm. thing here, we will come to him and make our home with him. This is another one of those themes in John that you don't get as much in the early, in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus promises over and over and over again to dwell with his people. This is an Old Testament promise that John is now showing how it's been fulfilled in Christ. Remember, you have a great lesson on this. The first question that these disciples of John ask Jesus is, where are you staying? Right. Where do you dwell? Where you dwell. It's not even just, we have different words for it, but for them, it's the same word that means to stay somewhere, to remain, to to dwell, to abide. Where are you abiding? And then he says, come and see. Mm -hmm. And later throughout the gospel, he says, if you abide in me, my word's in you. My words will abide forever. If you love me, my Father and I, we will come and abide with you forever. This is just another way that John takes a theme and runs it through the entire gospel. And this teaching section uh, is really full of love one another. Love by obeying my commandments. Love and then I will see you again. Love and the Spirit is coming. There's some rich teaching in here ending with this wonderful prayer, the longest prayer of Jesus that we have in chapter 17, which is all about unity. Unity between the Father and the Son, between the church, the church knowing God the way Jesus knows God the Father. And it's his prayer on behalf of everyone who will come after him. And then right after that, he goes to his death. Mm -hmm. So this is an expanded version of the final night of Jesus' time with the disciples. And then through the night, going, being tried, going before Pilate, being mm-hmm. crucified the next day. Yeah. I mean, this is just a beautiful structure running through John. And hopefully you're starting to go, yeah, I need to go read John again. But yeah, 14 through 16 also impresses me that some of the best things we know about the Holy Spirit are in those three chapters. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, I want to kick it to you as we're approaching kind of the end of the overview of the book here. This dialogue with Pilate here in chapter 18. There's really nothing like it in Scripture. This is a fascinating dialogue. Maybe give us an overview or kind of an annotated reading of this talk with Pilate. Yeah, it's one of two of my favorite passages. So I'm going to talk about this, uh, John 18 and 19, the trial with Pilate, Jesus and Pilate. And then I'm going to kick it back to you for the other one. And both of these passages... Jesus inverts, and this is a theme throughout all of the New Testament, but Jesus inverts the way of the world. And in this particular story, there's this obvious inversion of the idea of power and who is in power. And so you get the high priest brings Jesus before them, and of course they decide he's blasphemous when he says, yes, I am the Messiah, and I am the Son of God, and sends him over to Pilate, 
in a mock trial and pressures, politically pressures Pilate to kill him because they don't have the uh, power to do that. But when he comes before Pilate, you remember Pilate's reluctance. As he talks to Jesus, he realizes this guy is not like anything I've ever seen. You know, he comes in, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And uh, Jesus said, are you seriously asking or is this just an accusation? And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. Your own people are accusing you. What have you done? And Jesus begins to confuse Pilate. He says, my kingdom isn't of this world. And Pilate's like, well, why are they even bringing you here then? <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, you know, he goes back to the Jews and, and they continue to pressure him and he comes back and he can't get Jesus to either bribe him or uh, kowtow to him. And he says, this is a great passage. He says to him, don't you know that I have the power of life and death? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, don't you know that you would have no power or authority over me unless it had been given to you. Right. Let me butt in here because this is that same word we talked about at the very beginning. This is that word exousia, which means authority. Now you see one of the final installments in this theme. He says, don't you know that I have the authority, the power, I have the right to do this? Jesus shows, no, you have no authority except what is given by God. The only person who has authority in this story is Christ because it's been given to him by God. And this is that final blow to the authorities of the world where Pilate, who is the most powerful man, the most authority, and Jesus says, you don't have an ounce of authority if it hadn't been given to you by God. He literally turns it upside down. As you read this, and as Jesus is crucified and he dies, it looks like the, the priests and the Sadducees have indeed the authority to squelch Jesus, and Pilate indeed has the authority. And then you see the resurrection, you realize, actually, Jesus was right. They didn't have the authority. Not even death mm-hmm. has the authority over him. But that power authority runs all through the book of John. And I just love the idea of Jesus inverts the way we think of it. Maybe one of my favorite inversion stories, if you will, you just preached on. It's John chapter 9 about Mm -hmm. the man who was born blind. And what's he inverting there? Well, I've learned a lot about this story from you because this story is one of... It it, it inverts your own expectations about what's going to happen in this story. Because it begins in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus passes by and sees a man born blind. Okay, so you think, okay, we got a blind person here. You're expecting because Jesus is involved that he's going to have his eyes opened. Mm-hmm. But what you don't realize is this blind person is now going to show you that all the other characters in this story are also blind. Mm-hmm. They just don't know they're blind. This guy knows he's blind, but the other people don't know they're blind. And it really becomes a funny story because it, it is. Jesus opens the guy's eyes, and then he sends him down to be healed, and his neighbors can't believe it. Right. They think it's actually a look-alike. They think it's easier to believe he's not the guy they've known than that somebody who was born blind could actually see. Right. He says in verse 32 or 33, never in the history of the world has a man born blind had his eyes opened. And so they think this can't be. Well, the, the Pharisees, so the, the neighbors are blind. They don't believe this can happen. Yeah. The, they take him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are also blind, as you might expect. 
They're not blind for the same reason. They are not as concerned about this guy's eyes being opened as they are. This happened on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do this kind of stuff. totally missed the point. You're not allowed to do this stuff on the Sabbath. Not allowed to work, not allowed to make mud, not allowed to open the eyes of the blind. You can't do this stuff on the Sabbath. And Jesus, Jesus is actually out of the story at this point. The guy who's born blind goes back and forth with him. They haul the guy's parents in. And the guy's parents, they say, is this your son? Was he born blind? How does his eyes get opened? And his parents actually want nothing to do with it. They right. say, and in fact, what they say is, is this your son who you claim was born blind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they say, that is our son, and he was born blind, and we can't say anything else. <laughs> uh, because they're afraid. Right. And they don't want to give any more information. They say, he can speak for himself. Okay, he's of age. So then they bring the guy back in. And the guy decides to have some fun with him at this point. Because... In the second half of this story, they're still asking him. They say, give glory to God, which basically means come clean on this. You, we know that you're a sinner. And he answered, whether I'm a sinner, this is one of the best verses in Mm -hmm. the Bible. Whether I'm a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. The the gravity of this quote is totally wasted on the Pharisees. Right. Because... They say, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answers, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. And then he gets he gets kind of uppity with him. He says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> and uh, they say, we're disciples of Moses. We don't need to be disciples of, of Jesus. And he says, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he came from. And the man answered him, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet... He opens my eyes. And he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, and God listens to him. Therefore, he must not be a sinner. So you get this great dialogue, and what you realize through the whole thing is this man who's been able to see for one day is showing that his neighbors, his parents, the Pharisees are all spiritually blind. They're all totally blind. Now, what's interesting at the end of this passage is Jesus says, he goes and finds the guy who was born blind, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, who is he? So I can believe in him. Because he's never seen Jesus before. He's right. only heard his voice. So Jesus comes and finds him, and he says, you've seen him. And is he who's speaking to you? He says, I believe. And he falls and he worships him. This is the only time in uh, before Revelation, the book right. of Revelation, right. that anyone worships Jesus. So he worships Jesus, and then... Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is a troubling passage. Actually, I had somebody come and ask a really insightful question after the sermon this week. What's going on with this passage? Blind seeing, I'm great with that. Mm -hmm. Seeing going blind... That doesn't sound like what Jesus is doing. And then the whole, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What what does that mean? Well, how did you answer that question? Well, one of the things is, this is a continuance of a conversation that starts in chapter 5. Right. Goes through chapter 6, goes through chapter 8. And Jesus has made a lot of statements. And up until this point, the Pharisees have basically said, the jury's out on who this guy is. We're trying to figure out where he comes from trying to figure out who he is, trying to figure out what authority he does these things We're tapping by. back into this whole trial theme. Go ahead. And yes. in, in chapter 8, 
that's where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he illuminates everything. But he's not illuminating everything for the Pharisees because the Pharisees are still trying to say, what is our official position on this guy? Mm-hmm. Well, what happens in chapter 9 is a little bit of a break point. Mm-hmm. In chapter 9, they finally issue a verdict uh, of who Jesus is. And they say, we are disciples of Moses and we don't need you. Yeah, he and is a sinner. This he man is, a, is sinner. a sinner. He is sinful. He is not of God. Therefore, um, he cannot be doing these things, or if he is doing these things elsewhere, they say, he's doing it by the power of demons. That's their Mm -hmm. official position at one point. Well, this is a break for the Pharisees because it constitutes an actual choice against Jesus. Now they have set themselves up, and John actually comments on this by saying, at this point, they had started kicking people out of the synagogue, the temple, uh, because they had claimed Christ. So... If that's the case, they have put themselves against Christ and Jesus says, now that you claim that you see this clearly. Before, they just didn't know. Well, think about the man born blind. He had the humility to say, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And he's willing to have the humility to look at the signs, to look at the evidence. But the Pharisees ignore the evidence and say, we can see. And they reject Jesus. I think it's that position that is the, now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Now they have put themselves in a position where they actually can't come to Jesus because they decided he isn't who he says he is. Now, one of the things that's kind of cool is this doesn't have to be permanent because there is a Pharisee in the Gospel of John who slowly, gradually, over time, comes to see. His eyes are open. And this is probably the most famous story. I don't know if it's the most famous, but it has. it's around the most famous verse in John, which is John 3.16, and that is the dialogue with Nicodemus. Right. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He comes at night to see Jesus because he's ashamed and because he doesn't want everybody to know that he's thinking about what Jesus is saying. Mm-hmm. And he has this totally mind-bending, baffling conversation. He doesn't understand anything. But Jesus says, you must be born again. And then... Scholars argue with whether Jesus says or John says, uh-huh. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, Nicodemus goes away, and we don't know what happened to Nicodemus. All we know is he pops back up two more times right. in the book of John. Chapter 7, he stands up and he says, well, you know, maybe we should not hold a guy without a trial. And they say, well, are you from Galilee as well? I mean, yeah, you, you kind of seem like you're... For Jesus. You can tell... His initial puzzlement in chapter 3, you can tell that he comes at night and he's in the dark. And when Jesus responds to him, he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Mm -hmm. But, like you were just saying, by chapter 7, you see him standing up going, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. This guy, you know, this is not a fair way to treat him. We need to look at the evidence. And, of course, they shout him down. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the book... Then in chapter 19, after Jesus dies, it says, Joseph of Arimathea who offered Jesus his tomb, comes to collect the body from Pilate. And Nicodemus came as well with 75 pounds of spices. Now Nicodemus is out in broad daylight. Yes, He's coming to get the body. He's coming to prepare. You weren't supposed to touch dead bodies if you're a Pharisee. But if you're convinced that this is the Messiah, none of that matters anymore. Right. And so we see slowly but surely over the course of Jesus' ministry... Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, who Jesus is saying, if you say that you see, you don't see, realizes, I don't see like I thought I saw. And in the end, we saw him, We see him following Jesus. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And I hope as you've been listening to us, you realize that there are 
threads running all through this gospel, that there's some depth to this. He's making a point, and he's very patient to make it through the gospel. The seven signs, the seven I am statements, the play on the word abide or living or dwelling, uh, the the whole idea of authority, who has authority, the whole idea of witnesses. Mm-hmm. It's a very rich uh, gospel in that he's he's pulling all these things at once. I always say that whenever you read the Gospel of John, whatever you think is going on is, and there's at least one deeper thing happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that's so, that, that's so valuable about studying these scenes in John. So take, for example, the... Uh, conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. This is the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Bible. And it's with a Samaritan woman, of all people. There's tons of layers of background. That's no coincidence. Right. He comes all the way through this area just to talk to her. There's tons of background there. There's tons of things that he's talking about there. And then once you realize, oh, he's talking about worshipers. There's a whole history of worship in these two mountains that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he talks about the food that I have is to do the will of the one who sent me. Well, the one who sent me is itself a huge thread through the gospel of John. I mean, there's so many things interwoven through here. Now, before we bring this to a completion, I do want to point out there's two things that are controversial just on the surface in the Gospel of John. There are all kinds of things that may be controversial to some people, but there's two things that are pretty universally controversial in the Gospel of John. The first one is chapter 8, you have a note in your Bible, manuscripts don't contain one of the greatest and most beloved stories in the Bible, Mm -hmm. the woman caught in adultery. So we've actually talked about this before in terms of texts and how certain texts and manuscript traditions will let you know what is authentic, what is the oldest, what is has the best attestation, what doesn't. Mm-hmm. To do a quick summary of this story. This story is not likely to have been in this original spot right. in the Gospel of John. Now, is it original to the Gospel of John? There, there are a lot of people who argue different things on this. But the long and short of it is, it doesn't fit where it is. Like we've been talking about, John has a very organized way of laying out his gospel. This story doesn't go where it goes. Mm -hmm. The end of chapter 7 and the second half of what you'll read in John John 8, Uh they go together. The I am the light of the world discourse that's in John 8 and the events that happen at the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7 should Mm -hmm. go together. Because the light of the world and the lighting of the temple should go together. Right. This story doesn't fit. And the manuscripts actually bear that out. So, for example, there are some manuscripts that don't include this story at all. Right. There are some early manuscripts that add this passage somewhere else, like at the end of the gospel, just mm-hmm. tagged onto the end as an appendix. There are some manuscripts that actually have it in the gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. which I also don't think it fits in that spot in Luke. But, but it shows that this story is very old. Right. It's a story that sounds like something Jesus would have done. There's nothing about it in terms of what it says that makes us think, oh, no, Jesus would never have done this. It's very much like Jesus to do that, but it's very much unlike John to include it right here in this gospel. So is it something that is worth talking about, teaching, revealing something about Jesus' character? Sure. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's part of the original gospel of John? 
I personally don't, and it's okay to disagree on that. There is some disagreement there. It's not probably in this spot if it is from here. And there's not, in my mind, a likely spot where it should be in the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. But it has been included in a lot of manuscripts, and so it's presented here in your Bible. So it's not anti-biblical. You know, it's not opposed to the Bible, but it's probably not original to the Gospel of John. That's kind of my position. Yeah. You may disagree on that. What do you think? No, I actually agree completely with that. I, I would add this one thing. I think that the incident is authentic. And I, in other words, it actually happened. I think early believers knew it actually happened. And I believe that it was added into various Gospels at various times. And I do think it's useful for the church. I do think that we have it for a reason. But I agree with you, it wasn't originally there, and it may not have been originally in the Gospel of John, but it is authentic. And I would contrast it in this way. If you've ever read the Gospel of Thomas, which, by the way, is much, much later, no serious consideration that it's actually in the same time period or era. But I just want to say this. If you've ever read any of the stories in Thomas, and some of the Thomas sayings are events in the Gospels, you read this Gospel of Thomas sayings, you realize this is bizarre. This is not anything like the Jesus of any of the Gospels. It just self-evidently tells you this is not authentic. Mm -hmm. This story, I believe, actually happened, is authentic, and was added. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a good summary way to put it. The, so there's textual things like this everywhere mm -hmm. uh, that you can talk about. There's certain manuscript traditions that are more trustworthy than others, and this right. is a fascinating topic in and of its own. It doesn't uh, take away from the gospel at all to have it there. That's why the ESV and other versions keep it there, but in brackets. But it's probably not uh, authentic to that spot. Right. It's an authentic event, but not authentic there. The other thing that that is controversial about John that we've just touched on a little bit is the chronology. So, mm -hmm. for example, one of the things in John is Jesus comes into the temple and cleanses the temple early in his ministry in John. Or at least early in the story in John. Right. Whereas later, he cleanses the temple right after the triumphal entry. So he comes into Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple right before he dies. So you get people saying, well, see, the gospel writers disagree. Mm -hmm. John says that he did this at the beginning. Matthew, Mark, Luke say that he did it at the end. There's a contradiction here. There are several ways to adjudicate this. There's also a dispute over whether or not John and the synoptics portray Jesus doing the Last Supper and the crucifixion on the same day mm -hmm. of the week. So there's people that think that actually in John, he's portrayed as being crucified a day earlier mm -hmm. than he is in the other Gospels. So now you got to do Good Friday and Good Thursday at your church. Um, <laughs> but actually, if you start to work these out, there's two considerations I would mention. Number one, John is not concerned with linear chronology like the other Gospels are. Yeah, and as you go through, you'll see many examples of this. He's not even slightly concerned about the chronology. And I think that's that's probably a pretty good way to just go ahead and do away with this altogether is to say that John's intention is not to tell you, and he doesn't use time markers in a way that are, that's disingenuous. His intention is not to tell you the chronological story of everything that happened in Jesus' life. As we talked about, he's doing something to say, okay, in addition to this, what else would you need to know? The other way to do it is to say maybe sometimes these things happen multiple times. Maybe right. Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it of money money changers twice. Maybe he did it at the beginning. Maybe he did it at the end. People are also concerned that sometimes John mentions festivals. So for example, uh, the Feast of Booths, um, the Hanukkah festival is actually mentioned here. Uh -huh. in some of the things that John is doing. 
he's very concerned with this liturgical calendar mm-hmm. and the feasts of the Jews. And the other the other gospel writers really are not. And right. so you get people that are saying, oh, well, there's only one Passover in this version, and there's three in the other one, or how long was the ministry? These kinds of questions are important, and it's good to go in and work out how these details, but don't get so locked into this has to be on the timeline of what happened in the beginning of the gospel, then next, then next, then next, like the gospel of Mark, for example, in every gospel. It's possible that they're reporting different events. It's also possible that they're telling you about events in a way, in John's case, that is more like a collage of his ministry to highlight certain themes and certain things that he did. And I think those things are perfectly possible within a high inerrantist view of Scripture that you just don't make it what it's not. What is it trying to do? Well, it's trying to tell you something beyond chronology in the Gospel of John. And so every now and then you'll read something and they'll say, well, this can't be true because it happened on the wrong day or it happened at the beginning instead of the end. I don't find these arguments very persuasive. I think what they're doing is taking something really wooden and trying to apply it to John in a way that John's really not on the same page with a lot of that. I agree. You know, my saying is let the scripture be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. And I think that is a very Western, rigid way of putting something on the Gospels. I'm not opposed, by the way, though, comparing the Gospels and expecting there to be some consistency amongst them. But I think we need to be careful and let John do what he's trying to do. No one reads a poem and expects it to tell you the terms of your cell phone agreement. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we look at these and say, these need to conform, and they were intended to be 21st century historical uh, legal documents. Mm-hmm. And that's not what they're trying to be at all. So I, I agree with you. I don't take those very seriously because I think that's a matter of nitpicking something that isn't trying to be that at all. Mm-hmm. Well, let's give it a final word then on the Gospel of John. Either your takeaway or one of your favorite moments that we haven't covered so far, which, again, to quote John, we could spend all day. There could be books written to fill the whole world about Jesus' life. But what's your takeaway or your last word on the Gospel of John? Yeah, well, as I say, it's really personal to me because it's the first book I read when I decided I would check out Christianity. And what happened for me then, knowing nothing about the Bible, like is there an Old Testament, is there a New Testament, and reading the Gospel of John, something in the way he spoke about Jesus and the way he told this story rang to me as hugely authentic. And I had read a lot of philosophy, Eastern, Western, etc. at that time, but those simple words about this simple man doing extraordinary things resonated with me on a heart level and a head level mm-hmm. at the same time. So John is that puzzling book that looks too simple for an intelligent person, and yet, as you read it, you realize, I'll probably never get to the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the takeaway. And so I would just close by adding the way the book ends, which is kind of a exclamation mm-hmm. point on what you just said. It's that story of John and Peter and Jesus. Jesus is restoring Peter. John and Jesus go off up ahead. And Peter, of course, wants to know, you know what's going on up there, what's being said. And after this encounter, John writes this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. That's what you get to at the end of the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.